much. My name is Michael Adams, and I'm joined by my co-host, John Rahimi, for episode three of The Catch, a Catholic podcast. John, how's it going? Pretty good, Mike. Yes, uh, round two here today, knocking these things out. Uh, yeah, I just, um, I forgot to share this with you earlier, but a, a funny instance, which I think you'll appreciate, occurred the other day at dinner. We were having some delicious Mexican food, and... I don't know if you know what a tostada is, but it's basically like a fried tortilla. It's nice and crispy. Oh yeah, good stuff, good stuff. A little, little crunch. A little crunch. Um, and I was challenged by a priest here to recreate the, I think it's the crunch wrap, the crunch wrap supreme from our favorite restaurant, Taco Bell. Okay, I've, I've been seeing this going around on social media. Wait, what? Literally like two days ago, I saw a video on Facebook, how to make one. Well, that's a significant bummer. I thought it was unique in this. Dang it. Yeah, because he was like, we have the tostadas. We've got these delicious flour tortillas, like these soft, tender tortillas. And you can put a bunch of meat and sour cream and cheese and lettuce, tomato, all these great things, and make a, to- a supreme contract. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Challenge accepted. But okay, now I'm not that cool anymore. I mean, it's still pretty cool. You did it without the instructions. Oh, that's pretty impressive. It. I haven't done it yet. Oh, you haven't done it. Oh, you're going to do it. I was challenged. I was going to do it today. Oh, well, just don't go on, don't go on social media and look at the directions. Just do it on your own. That'll be cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm no, I'm no chef, but we'll see how it turns out. Like I'm a peanut butter and jelly is my thing. Basically. If, if yeah. people were, I've sent submissions to America's test kitchen to food network. Rachel Ray is still considering it, but you know, Peanut butter and jelly is my jam. So branching out into the more... Peanut butter and jelly is your jam. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Moving okay, right a really big question that. about peanut butter and jelly, though. Listeners, feel free to get into this debate with us. Do you toast your peanut butter and jelly or no? I would say no. I Ooh. am a purist. A good, wholesome, white bread, delicious wheat. Or actually, wheat bread's okay, too. White bread's better. But white bread with creamy Jif peanut butter yes. and Smucker's blackberry jelly, not Concord grape. Oh, interesting. There's a, there's a difference. And a nice even spread of peanut butter across the one slice. And then just, just the scrapings of the peanut butter on the other slice. And then douse mm. the other side in jelly and put them together. Mm. I take seems pride like in it. Seems like you're slandering the PB&J recipe. You toast yours? But it's okay. I do toast it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I go back and forth. If I'm at home, I don't toast it. But if I'm at, when I was uh, living back at U of I, we had a panini press. You make the PB&J and then you panini press it. <laughs> and I promise you, it made the best PB&J ever. Just panini press it for like 15 seconds. Gets a little crunch on the top, but the insides are still soft and mushy. You Ooh. probably put your PB and ba- PB&J in a bagel too. I, you know, it's not bad. I have tried it before. I had it for breakfast one time. It was pretty good. Sacrilege. Wow, it's, it's tasty. Dude, I've been eating PB&J since, like, I was two. Same. And almost, like, every day here at the house, I have peanut butter and jelly. I am known for my peanut butter and jelly. So I think I have an authority here. Uh, All right, everyone, keep in touch with our Facebook page. John and I are going to be having a peanut butter and jelly contest here in the next few weeks. So many followers over this because of <laughs> hard opinions on peanut butter and jelly. It's okay. but It's a worthwhile argument. Peanut butter and jelly is a thing that brings me... Lots of joy. Oh, there it is, everyone. Solid Smooth segue. transition. Into the topic today, which is joy. 
That's right, everyone. We're talking about joy. Not happiness. Not happiness. Joy. Because it's the Easter season, and what do we say during the Easter season? Rejoice. So, this is going to be a kind of deep dive into a sort of brain slash faith perspective because we're humans and we're body and soul. So it all works together anyway. Um, but I found this article actually, actually I didn't find it. I take that back. A priest gave it to me. Uh, but it's by this doctor, Dr. James Wilder. I don't know where he's from. But... Yes. James Wilder. Very familiar with his work. <laughs> very, very familiar. Good man. I, yeah, I recommend looking him up because this stuff is awesome. I thought, so I just want to take a look at this to kind of look at, you know, what is joy? What do we, what do we mean when we say joy and uh, kind of how this plays a role in our life, not only like receiving joy, but then maintaining it because that's really important. It's really easy to feel that high. It's very difficult to maintain it. Um, and then looking at how this can lead to a transformation, right? As Christians, our whole life is about being transformed in Christ to be more and more like him. So, uh, Joy is a big part of that, remaining in joy and allowing that to transform our hearts and our minds into uh, the, the people we were called to be. And lastly, just some you know, practices that could maybe help um, in maintaining your joy. So, yeah, we're going to look at those things today. Easy Sound enough. good? Yeah, yeah, perfect. I'm excited. Good. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, John prepped this topic. I don't have much prep for it, but I'm excited to see what John has to say. And I'll try to pitch in as much as I can. Yeah, hopefully this doesn't turn to a... 30 minute festival of John talking to himself. All right, here we go. So first question, what is joy? Any thoughts? Um, honestly, when you told me we were doing joy, I lied. I did do a little bit of preparation, <laughs> even though I wasn't really supposed to. I was supposed to kind of let John do it, but I'm kind of a perfectionist as you learn. So I couldn't really do that without being anxious. So um, I'm from the heart of Illinois, Metamore, Illinois, which, is pretty, which is pretty close to actually where um Fulton Sheen is from mm. I live about like 30 or 40 minutes away from his hometown so Fulton Sheen's a huge deal he's part of the diocese of Peoria we have his body at our cathedral now um, and I was reading some of his quotes last night just about what he said on joy and one thing kind of summarizing one of his quotes that really hit me hard was kind of that comparison between happiness and joy it's kind of where I found that definition of joy um, and it's that happiness is from the outside and that joy is from within and so joy is almost that fruit from that inner love that you feel and that you know, and that love actually taking place and like being deeply rooted in your heart. And that is where that joy comes from because that, that love within you is unchanging and it's abiding and it's pervasive. And so through that, that joy is actually able to grow almost like a tree, you know, like the tree actually like digs its roots into the, like into the soil, the soil of our heart. So Joy itself is a seed and it's a tree. And we are putting those roots within our hearts and within our souls of that love of Christ. And from that, that seed is able to grow into something beautiful. It's able to grow into this tree that can bear fruit and that fruit being joy. Okay, guys, uh, that's a good podcast. We're going to stop there and that's about it. Wow, that was great. Okay. Um, really beautiful. So I think, yeah, I think what's striking me is right. It's, really cool quote so it's not from the outside it's from the inside um right it's not like um joy isn't this like static thing it's uh it's not the same descriptive word we would use if uh, we were describing like i don't know you say something is salty that's a static thing 
it's not, there's no dynamism there. There's no kind of energy movement. Uh, sorry, joy uh, is relational. There's a back and forth. There's an ebb and flow. And kind of one of the, sh the signatures of joy is that we're, we're sharing in like, I don't know, like a moment with another who is glad to be with us. Uh, who's glad that we are there and we're glad that they are there with us, right? That's when joy kind of comes up because it incorporates another person. It's not just about me. Because um, if it is about me, uh, that can go away really quickly. It just, it's a turning inward. It's the same thing we talk about like with uh, people who are in love, couples or married people. You don't just go off the feelings right away of like, oh, well, I was in love and I felt it, but now it's gone. Like if it's just about your feelings, from the outside, what's coming in, uh, it's going to die pretty quickly. But if it's about the, from the inner life, back and forth, this relational thing, that's where it becomes sustainable. So yeah, I just think it's important first to, to know this. Um, and then just to recognize like, okay, joy, uh, is this just a nice secular term or do we actually see this in the gospel? The answer is we do see it in the gospel. Uh, we just heard it recently, I think. Um, well, if you were reading the last supper discourse, like on Holy Thursday, you would see this, but right when Christ is talking to his apostles at table, he expressly talks about joy, right? He wants their joy to be complete and my joy to be in you. Uh, and this is a central feature of his prayer to the father in John 17, um, for his disciples. Like he, joy is a big part of Jesus. Like he's, he's, giving them all these teachings and he's being with them so as to complete their joy, right? So joy is a big part of the Christian life. It's not just something we can discard, but it's a key feature in our, uh, our transformation, right? Cause as Christians, our whole life is about being transformed in Christ. So joy is central. And then from like a brain perspective, joy is associated with kind of the parts of the brain that stimulate uh, our character formation, our identity consolidation, our moral behavior. So like kind of who we are. So we need joy to know who we are and to really maintain that identity. Okay, good. Are you with me yeah. so far? No, I am with you. Um, and kind of going off that idea of like, Jesus had this joy that he was trying to instill within his disciples. And it's always like, you know, we are called to be Christ-like, you know, in our life. Like it's like, oh, like I want to be more like Christ to be like that ultimate Christian that I'm actually called to be. And it's like, we're made in God's likeness and image. So that joy that was within Christ is also that joy that we are actually called to have. Mm. And it's that same level of joy. I think sometimes it's hard to separate that. Like, Oh, I always imagine Jesus being like the super intense dude. Maybe I shouldn't, but I imagine him being the super intense dude and just calling me out on everything. It's in like reality, like even like within like the midst of his life, like, so many great sufferings and trials that he had to go under, like imagining the joy that was within his heart. Um, and imagine like, okay, that's actually the joy that I am called to have is something far, far more difficult to understand for me. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know what you think about that, but just kind of trying to imagine like, Oh, I'm supposed to be as joyful as Jesus was. And yeah. It's like Jesus went through infinitely more trials and sufferings than I did. Yeah. And but he is able to be joyful while I'm here being like bitter, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And just, I think, right. You just said it really well. Like we're called to have that same joy that Jesus has. Um, and that he is someone like, I think that phrase that 
Dr. Wilder is using here of um, someone who is right, glad to be with the other. That's so important for how we see Jesus and seeing him as a joyful person. Otherwise, we can kind of get this kind of, you know, uh, angry, judgmental, like pushy kind of like man that's just like, do better, do better. Like, come on, we gotta be better. Like, right? The word's tender, uh, joyful, loving, right? That, they sound flowery, but they're true. Um, we look at like John 14. Uh, he says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If there were not what I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where I am also you may be. He wants you to be with him. Like he is so joyful. Like I read that and just like imagine him smiling and just like so happy to be like, yes, I want you with me so badly. Um, right. So that's like this, that's, that's the joyful call to, um, what does that mean? We can't be joyful. Uh, like when things are difficult or when we're sad or when we are encountering something that is incredibly painful. Um, no, joy still is there, right? It's equally powerful in painful states. Uh, the example from scripture we think of is, right, uh, we weep with those who are weeping and we rejoice with those who are rejoicing, right? So we rejoice and are joyful with those who are joyful, but we are also able to then weep with those who are weeping. But like you imagine, um, have you ever gotten like some really bad news in your life and it's very difficult. It's very painful. You don't feel joyful in that moment. You're not like, I am so happy right now. It's not what you're experiencing. You feel alone and you want someone to be with you to help you. But if you've ever had an experience of a friend or a family member or someone just coming to meet you there and being with you, um, you may have experienced this, uh, you know, you start weeping because you're just so happy that that person is with there with you. And you're, you're, not, you're not weeping with this kind of euphoric bounce, um, but it's still joy just because you're not like, oh, euphoric and joyful and ecstatic, but it's, it's still very present in that. Yeah, I remember this actually this past semester at the University of Illinois, I had something tough happened and I remember late at night, it was about 1030 at night. I was like, man, like this just sucks. Like there's just no way around this sucks. Like I'm not happy right now. Like, man, how am I going to deal with the situation? I remember texting my good friend, Ryan DeFrance, and it's being like, hey, man, like, I don't know what you're up to right now, but like, I just want to talk. Like, I see something to kind of take my mind off this thing. Um, and without even like second thought, like he was at my door within 20 minutes. And not just at my door, he came in, shared a beer with me. And just was like, you know what, dude? Like, yeah, we're going to hit this through. And I'm just going to be your friend right now. And that right there was one of those moments I can say that's like, yeah, in that moment, like, I wasn't happy. Mm -hmm. But I was extremely joyful to have someone there to encounter that situation with me. And there's that more idea of like, okay, I don't have to face this scary thing alone. Yeah. I have someone to walk down that path with me. And it's that same idea with God. It's like, how can I find God in this? Like in this deeply troubling moment, yeah. how is there God present to hear? Um, it's the idea of like, no, God like does not leave you and God is with you. And so once you come to like that, 
once you come to a deep understanding of that, less than like just like a surface of like, oh yeah, God's with me, like cool, whatever, like that's what everyone always says. Like once you come into that understanding, of like no, like he is deeply, intimately present within your heart. Mm-hmm. You come to understand it's like, oh, I don't have to walk alone in anything. Yeah, I can find joy in anything because I know that God is by my side. And it kind of brings me back. I had this confession last year. Um, honestly, the most moving confession I've ever experienced in my life. And to this day, like I remember word for word what the priest said because it was so striking. Um, and I think what I was confessing is something along the lines of like, you know, caring what others think. Um, and like maybe this isn't related, but I think the phrase is applicable to this is, you know, he said, even if the whole world abandons you, Michael, mm. Christ stands by you. And I was, I literally like went back. I'm pretty sure I went, Whoo, father. Ooh, that was tough. Dang, you should use that more often. Make a homily about it. I think it made him laugh, but I was just like, when reflecting on it, it's like, wow, like the reality of that phrase, if it's true, is life-changing. It's monumental. Like the whole world turns its back on you. Christ stands by you. And like we look at that on just like people, like not just ourselves, like society, who like society has turned their backs on multiple thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. It's like Christ stands by you. You know, it's like, why would he do that? Why would he want to stand by me if the whole world is turning away? And we look to his crucifix, like we look to his passion. It's like, he's been there. He knows that feeling. He knows what it's like to have society look at you and say, this one is not enough. And this one should be put to death. Mm-hmm. Like to understand that like, he is worthless in the eyes of society. He knows the human emotion because he is fully human and fully God. Like he knows the human emotion that you're undergoing within these sufferings. And he's able to actually walk by your side because he knows how desperately you need it. Yeah. You come to a deep understanding of like, oh man, like he's actually fully here. It's just your life's fully different. Just fully different. Totally. Yeah. And this, right. Like I love the way that you just talked about that and the way the priest phrased it, but right. This is foundational. We think of Christmas. What's the song? O come, O come, Emmanuel. What does that word mean? It means God is with us. And that's so true. But then like what happens is that we get Jesus out of it. Like the person of God is now present on earth. Okay, great. But like, this is just mind-blowing to me. Is it, that wasn't enough. Like he came to earth and so people are like, oh, well, why didn't Jesus just stay? Like, he's God. He could just be here so I could see him and I would know him and I would totally believe him. If I, if I saw Jesus today, I would totally believe in him. But you have to think, right? Because God came as a human person, fully human, he could only be in, right, one spot. We don't see him bouncing around and being in different places and moving through walls until after the resurrection, until he's been glorified. He had to die first. So he died so that he could be closer to us. That's not love. I don't know what is. I mean, that's just beautiful. But he died so he could be so close to us in the Eucharist, right? We think of the road to Emmaus is that as soon as they recognized him in the breaking of the bread, he's gone, disappears. But like, why? To point to them that this is going to look different now. It's not going to be like me, the physical body that you're used to. It's going to be this. But that's going to be so much more intimate because I'm going to be within you. So personally united, my body and yours together, like, oh man, it gives me a big chills. It's so beautiful. But um, I think what you just said there, right? This idea of we need to know this because this changes everything. And this is something that's really difficult, I think, for our culture because, right, we as Americans 
we come from background of Puritanism, right? This is why we have such a difficulty with sexuality because sex is bad, the body is bad. This is a Puritan idea, it's not a Catholic thing. Um, but there's this, uh, this philosophy called voluntarism, which basically says that the will is the highest and strongest function of the person, which is a really attractive way to think, uh, especially for young people. It's a really easy trap to fall into because it's subtle. It's not like the will's up there, right? Um, Aquinas, I think, has this model of like it's intellect, will, your sensual, and then your sexual appetites, right? So all these things, but they're ordered that way. So the intellect and will are of the spiritual dimension, right? They're what the angels have. And then the other two bring in the humanity side, but we're body, soul. So we have all of them. Real quick, John, not to cut you off, but could you maybe just go into what you mean by that will perspective, just so everyone kind of gets a full picture of what you're painting here? Yes. So when I say that we think the will is the highest of our functions is that basically the kind of solution that we come to when situations arise is that um, we just need to renew our vision for what we need to do and then our intention to do it and do it better next time. This is the same trap we all fall into a lot with sin. Let me go to confession and confession just becomes this, okay, I need to do better next time. All right, we go out and go do better. And then like two days later, you're back in there confessing the same thing. Right. Which is not a bad thing, but the, the good old, forgive me, father, for I've sinned. It has been a day and a half since my last confession. Exactly. Um, but like, it's, that's not the attitude we're supposed to have mm -hmm. um, because that it makes it all about us. It makes it like just grinding. But I, what I love about this article is that from a brain perspective, the will um, is a neurological, neurologically weak factor. Like it's not one of the stronger ones, right? This is why St. Paul says in Romans seven that like, you know, I don't do what I ought to do. And, you know, I do what I ought not do. Yeah, because the will is weak, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your will is not the stronger one. <laughs> like it is not the thing that's going to cause you to change, right? So if you just renew your intention and your, um, your vision for what you need to do and just will yourself to do it, you're never going to change, at least not in the long term. You might be good for a couple of weeks, months, year even, but in the long term, it's going to falter. I think that's kind of a dangerous thing. You brought this back to like the American value system and Something that I do really think of right now is like the whole American value of like, if you want something, just will yourself into it. Just, just make it happen. You know, if you want to go make a hundred thousand dollars a year, go make it happen. Like, Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and go do it. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I will say like, I'm a firm believer in that statement a lot, but you know, I am one of those people that's like, you know what, if you want something, just go out and get it. And mm -hmm. maybe that's not always a great thing in my head. I think there's a balance between that. Like there is mm -hmm. an aspect of like the will is like, Yes, you have, there has to be an aspect of will. Like there has to be some yes. desire of yes. changing that will, but it can't be the dominating factor. It can't be all that there is. Like we, we keep talking about like, this whole idea of like faith is not one dimensional. And it's the whole thing of like, okay, if we're going to live within joy and like live in this life of Christ, like, again, it's not one dimensional. Like it, we don't have to choose between one thing or the other. And that's like the beautiful thing about our faith is we don't have to choose between joy or sorry, we don't have to choose between will and intellect. Like it can be a union of the two into something more beautiful and something more deeply rooted in ourselves so that we can actually live it out more fruitfully. 
Amen. Yeah, exactly. The, the thing we like to talk about, right. Is that, um, I think this is like, I guess the clients have a little bit about this, but, um, or probably a lot. I haven't read that much, but right. The idea is that the, he never submits the will to the intellect. He, he affirms the goodness and the importance of the will, right? Like you need to have that, that desire to push yourself forward. You can't do it otherwise. Um, like knowing it's not enough, but, uh, right. The will is, um, at least from a brain perspective is where the processing ends rather than when it's beginning. Right. So it's not where it starts. The intellect is where it needs to start. So then the will then comes out of knowing, right. We can't love what we don't know. Like you don't just let, you can't like really get into it and will yourself towards it. It becomes a lot more difficult to do. Um, so the idea of like the people who are dating and they say, I love you on the first date. It's like, you don't know me enough to love me. Like, yeah. how can you feel love if you don't know me? Um, yeah. It's the same yeah. idea of this. Like you can't experience true love unless like there is some aspect of intellect and some aspect of like, I know the depths of this yeah. and I know the reality behind this. And because of that, I can come into that love. And I can live in that love. Yeah. And even then, right. So then from like a personal standpoint, like for yourself is that um, like your identity region of your brain, it leads to the acts of the will. So once you know who you are, you act out of that um, rather than the other way around. So brain processing that leads to identity and character change. So like kind of changing our perception of who we are, because a lot of us have difficulty with that. Um, it begins in the love and attachment region of the brain, which is really beautiful and kind of cool. Like God made it that way. He, he knew. Um, so even the motivation to change, right, is being birthed from love and attachment. It's coming from that place. So this is why this is just so important, the joy, because um, these joy-based like character change, um, it's growing from joy. Right, the love and attachment thing, we experience that love and attachment better when it's joyful. Right? This is why Pope Francis talks about the joy of the gospel, and we need to proclaim the gospel with joy. Otherwise, no one's going to believe us, or no one's going to change if it's not joyful. Um, here we go. Uh, fun fact, I'm getting a nice call from Cardinal Supich right now. So oh, man. give me two seconds here. I'll be right back. All righty. Yeah, we'll be right back, guys. And we're back. Yep. Sorry about that, guys. Okay, moving back to the topic here. So we're talking about joy and how it leads to transformation, right? So uh, our brains form an identity based on what begins in the love and attachment region of our brains, right? So God, who gives us his joyous love, when we see that he is delighted to be with us, glad to be with him uh, from our end, once we form that, uh, that basis there, our identity, we act from our will, right? So that leads to the change. Uh, right, all this is growing out of a place of joy. If we don't have the joy, if that joy is not present in the love and attachment region, there's no way this change is going to be sustainable. Uh, kind of like with the tree like, example, kind of, yeah. sorry not to interrupt you, but kind of like the tree, like without the roots, there is no growth. And like the whole branch idea of like, if you're cut off from the vine, you're cut off from like the actual source of nutrition, there is no growth. And it's the same right. thing here. If you're cut off from the joy, if you're cut off from the love, there is no interpersonal growth within those characteristics or within just like the developing of joy itself within our own hearts. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and one of the neat things about this, right. Is that like when you uh, change right from joy, when your change is coming from a place of joy, you begin to grow then into the one whom you love, right? Because that's the basis for all of this. It's the uh, attachment that you have there. So we start to take on the characteristics 
of the other person. So in our, in our spiritual lives with God, we start to take on the characteristics of God. We become more and more like Christ. Uh, but then even in a, in a human level, like just with relationships, we start to take on the characteristics of those we love. So whether it be friends or if you're uh, with a significant other, you start to take on their personality traits. Like we, gave, we used to give Michael uh, a really hard time saying that, oh, you know, you've changed because he was dating, dating Mary. Yeah, that was a tough, tough couple of months. <laughs> Not the relationship. The relationship is great. Still is great. But yeah, I dealt with a lot of that for my friends. Every time I would even say hello to Mary in front of them, they'd say, oh, Mike, you have changed. You've changed. Mike's changed. Yeah, we were being a bunch of punks. But right, there was, there was truth there. Um, because in a certain, in a certain sense, like you, he'd started to take on uh, characteristics of the person that he was with. And it's, there's a beauty there. It's not bad. Exactly. And I think that's a good point. It's beautiful when you do take on those characteristics because it's not that you're taking on necessarily bad characteristics always, although sometimes that does happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the whole idea of like you surround yourself with the kind of people you want to be like. Yep. But in that, sometimes you see the beauty in that love. And you're like, oh, wow, this person has something that I'm lacking and I should try to emulate what they have. Like in like friendships, even like relationships, like, okay, this person's far more patient than I am how like in stressful situations, I can now pay attention and be like, okay, how are they dealing with this situation? And in turn, how can I actually take those tangible observations that I've like taken into view and be like, okay, I can actually emulate that and change, change my own self and be able to become more patient or whatever the virtue is. But you can kind of take and pick and choose like, okay, this is something that they're really great at that I'm struggling with. And so how do they actually do that? And how can I emulate that, put it into practice within my own life? Exactly. And I'm glad you bring that up because um, in the article, Dr. Wilder has some tips for joy building within families, friendships, communities, whatever. So I just wanted to run through those pretty quickly, but um, he's got a few. So we'll just kind of knock them out one at a time here. So he's got number one, smile. Very simple. But when you greet other people, uh, smile and use a sincere tone of voice. Right? We talked about being authentic, an authentic person to the other. This is that opportunity. Start that. Start that way. Something so simple too, just a smile. And you know, you hear that sometimes. I remember I watched a video on Facebook one time and I was like, how easy is it to brighten someone's day? And it was like, they walked up, smiled, said hello and said, you know what? You have a beautiful smile or something like simple like that. It's like, oh, like such a simple thing, but like the true joy that like you can see it take over their face after you like meet them without that authenticity. I don't know. It's something so simple, but overlooked, I think. Amen. Yeah. Number two here. Uh, ask questions and invite others to tell you truthfully how they're doing and then in, listen intently without interrupting them. This one's really hard, actually, I think, um, at least for me. The, the first part there, it's easy to ask the questions, but you need to respect uh, where the other person is at, right? Because uh, vulnerability is good, but um, allowing them to share what they want to share when they want to share it and not trying to impose our own demands on them. And that involves patience, it involves trust on both parties. I think that also important to note is that you can't expect that openness and that vulnerability out of everyone in your life. Exactly. You know, it takes time to actually build that level of comfortability with someone else in your life to say, okay, this is something I actually want to tell you. You can't just go up to a stranger and pour your heart, your heart open. Like I, that'd be weird. If somebody just randomly came up to me, and was like, Hey Michael, here are my deepest, darkest problems deal with them and I didn't even know them or just like view them from association like obviously I can meet them maybe and try to show them some sort of compassion but it won't be as fruitful as if it was like there was a loving and trusting relationship there before 
Yeah, totally agree, Mike. That's great. Um, good. So moving on to number three, work hard to understand the other person's fears, joys, passions, talents, and discover what brings them joy and then do it, right? This is really important. Uh, when we look at the other person and see, you know, how their heart works, what kind of personality they have, um, we can really be attentive to them and encounter them in a real way. So uh, if someone likes to, you know, just hang out, go on a walk, uh, they like to get notes, they like gifts, whatever, help them out by doing those things for them, right? Be a good friend to that person. So these are like the love languages, quality time, gift giving, words of affirmation, stuff like that. Yeah, I, it's, it's exciting to think of that too, to understand that like, when we, we're giving these like practical ways of like increasing joy, it's not just like increasing the joy within your own heart. It's ways that you can actually increase joy throughout the world. And like, you know, there's whole like song, joy to the world, like that. Like, no, these are actually like real concrete ways that you can like actually interact with people and like help spread real joy within their own hearts and like help that joy grow. Um, I can't help but think of my good friend, David McCormick here. Uh, you know, just being able to go to him, like I know he loves sports. That's his thing. And I know that a way to make him experience joy is to bring up sports. Even if he's having a terrible day, if I go in there and talk U of I sports with him, like I'm going to leave that table or I'm going to leave his room and he's going to be a much happier person after that conversation. Um, so just knowing the individual and not just being like a one, one size fits all kind of dealer. It's like, well, for so-and-so I went on a walk and it made them really joyful and like it really made their day. So that probably will work with this other person. It's like, no, each person has unique love languages different things speak to different people. So knowing your friends well enough to be able to actually give them the gifts that they need. Yeah, exactly. So again, going back to the whole knowing thing, we got to know people first before we can really love them. Awesome. And the last one here is through words and actions, establish that you are authentically glad to be with them, right? And this kind of ties it all together. As much as we want to talk about joy and how good and important it is, if you don't explicitly tell someone or show them that you are actually glad to be with them and that you are joyful with them and you care about them, none of this really matters. Um, but right, it's difficult because intimacy is hard. But there was a uh, there was an article I think or a Instagram post that uh, David's sister Christina shared with me. Um, always the McCormicks. Always the McCormicks. But the guy was saying something along the lines of um, right, like God became man. He took that risk in loving us. So basically, like, love is a risk. It is risky to put yourself out there and be that explicit in how much you care for the other person to really say, like, I really enjoy being with you. Like, that's hard because um, it might not be reciprocated. No, yeah. There's nothing else that I can say there. It's terrifying. It's just part of it. But it also makes it so much more special and makes that interaction of joy, like, more authentic, I think. Just, like, you think of people, like, celebrating anything. Like, like I think of... Uh, people celebrating like V-Day for World War II. It's like, yeah. they're celebrating this great thing because there was such a great risk there. Mm. And they realize that like the risk is no longer present and like they are left with this beautiful lasting country. And like now the world can like start to rebuild itself and like start to rehabilitate its own heart. Um, it's kind of like that whole deal of just like, yeah, love is a risk and sometimes it's just going to hurt. It's just matter of fact, but other times you're left with like a really beautiful lasting tree going back exactly to go back to the joy tree well good i think that's a, a satisfactory amount of stuff on joy yeah we <laughs> a little bit all over the place we like to ramble don't we we do but yeah no. good yeah so be joyful. Well, 
Yeah, be joyful. That's it. If you listen to nothing else, just here, be joyful, spread joy. But yeah, I think that's all we have. If you guys have any questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email us at thecatchcc at gmail.com. Again, we'll be praying for you guys. Please pray for us. But yeah, anything else, John? Nope. Talk to you guys next time. All right. Adios. Thank you.